Good morning. Let's pray together as we begin. Our good and great God, we give thanks to you for your wonderful goodness to us. We thank you that we can hope and rest in you. We thank you that we can know you. We thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. We thank you that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us and that you are here right now with us. We ask that you would teach us now as we open your word. Lord, may we learn, may we learn from the life of Elijah, and may you be glorified in each of our lives. We pray in Jesus' precious name, amen. If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings 19. Now when we left off a few weeks ago, and yes, I intentionally let it drag out for a few weeks. Elijah was running for his life, wasn't he? He was escaping a very wicked queen. Does anybody remember her name? Jezebel. Yes. Jezebel, the wicked queen. In 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 2, she sent messengers to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also. If I make not thy life, it's the life of one of them, her own 400 prophets that are dead, been executed, by tomorrow about this time. You're going to be as dead as the 400 prophets, my prophets, that you have executed. Now, she probably didn't view it as executing, but that's exactly what it was. They were executed. And so Elijah, he hears this and he flees. Look at verse 3. It says, And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. Now, I look for some key words in my Bible. And here we find a key word. One of the key words I look for is the word belief. And all the related words to belief. He believed God. He had faith. And then another word that I look for is anything relating to our eyes. Because I'm reminded in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 that there it's just given as a little parenthetical phrase. That's how important it is because you say, well, how is it important if it's a parenthetical phrase? Well, that's just the point. It's so important it's presumed in everything. That's the point of it. We walk by faith and not by sight. And so whenever I find words that have to do with sight or our eyes, I, I get alerted and I want to pay attention. And so I hear, see this here. It says here, Elijah saw that. And kind of interesting that it uses the word saw that. What did he see? She sent him a messenger. What did he see? I don't know. But it resulted in him being terrified for his life and fleeing, fleeing from Israel, running south. Now, unfortunately, some reason this morning, my computer decided not to wake up. I uh, need to figure that out. Um, so I wanted to show you a map, and you all know that I love maps. But I'm curious, if I were to name um, some locations, do you think you can imagine it in your minds? Uh, do you think you know where Judah is? Can you imagine where Judah is? How many of you think you can imagine where Judah is? Okay. How about the town Beersheba? How many of you have any idea where Beersheba is? A few of you. How about this one? This one's very famous and really important. How many of you can picture in your mind where Mount Sinai is? Where Mount Sinai is? Okay. 
Well, I have an exercise for you all to do then. Where did I put that? Ah, there it is. Um, as you know, this past week, I got to go out to, um, to California for my grandfather-in-law's memorial service. Uh, it was last Saturday, not yesterday, but a week ago. And um, he was a pastor and had been a pastor for many, 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 many years. But back in 1958, I think this is the year your mom was born, Ethan. Is that correct? So in 1958... He was in seminary in Taiwan, and apparently he had an assignment to draw a map. Now, this is a photocopy of the map he drew. I don't know if you can see that very well, but um, <laughs> it's magnificent. It is absolutely amazing, the detail he put into this map. So I'm excited because guess what? I got to inherit the originals. So I'm going to hang them up, and this is just a photocopy, and they're amazing maps. But here's the, here's the thought. When, when I was also in school, they had an assignment about making maps. Now, my map looked nothing like this. My map looks so bad, there's no reason anyone would preserve it. These, it turns out, they were preserved at the, at the seminary in Taiwan. And then in the 90s, an archivist was going through them and so impressed, he ended up sending them back to him. Um, of how beautiful they are. And they're gorgeous. I have a set of five of them of different periods. But it would help you. And there's a few aspects of pieces of drawing a map that would help you. And um, so in, in light of the fact that I always help you out by putting it just up on the screen so you got it like this, maybe you need to personally sit down with a, with a Bible atlas, and I've got one of those, and the church library's got one, and there's probably one in the back of your Bible, and, um, and look up some major cities. Like, let me give you a really big one. How many of you can picture in your mind where Jerusalem is? Okay, that's better. That's a really important one to know where it's at, right? Well, Mount Sinai. Well, this one's actually complicated because um, I confuse you all because where all the maps, including my, my grandfather's map here, puts it in the wrong spot. That's my opinion. Uh, but there's some good reasons. But here we have the, um, the, the Sinai Peninsula. The Sinai Peninsula. And the traditional site for Mount Sinai is basically right there in the middle. Now, I actually think it's over here where I put a red X over on the other side, and I think that the Red Sea crossing was here. But um, it's down in this area, in this area here. Either, either it's in the, what's known as the Sinai Peninsula, or it's over here in Midian, or also known as Arabia. That's the reason why I put it over there, is because it's said to be in Arabia. So on this map, you know, Israel, where, um, where Elijah's been with the queen, um, and Jezreel, which is their royal palace, it's up here actually out of the map. It's pretty far up north. It's pretty far up north. It's outside of the map. And he comes down, and he comes down to Beersheba. Now, does anybody recognize the name Beersheba and know why you recognize the name Beersheba? Anybody have any ideas? You think? Well, it has to do with the fact that it was the uh, identifying place for the southernmost part of the heartland of Israel. So once you got beyond Beersheba, it turned to desert. Beersheba was pretty much the last stop um, before things turned to desert. And here on this map, it's actually marked here because it's a prominent city as marking that. It's, it's really close to the lower side of, of the Sea of 
the Sea of Galilee, not the Sea of Galilee, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. Um, it's on the lower part of that. So Elijah here is fleeing, and he's going a long ways. It's about 150 miles from Jezreel, where he's at with Ahab and Queen Jezebel, down to Beersheba. And he gets to Beersheba, and there it says that he leaves his servant behind there. And he keeps on going. It says in verse 4 that he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my fathers. Poor Elijah, he's having a rough day. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. How's he having a rough day? I mean, he just now was on Mount Carmel. You all remember what just happened. He was just on Mount Carmel where he had assembled the nation of Israel together and had that confrontation with the prophets of Baal where he appealed to the prophets of Baal to offer a sacrifice and he would offer a sacrifice. And how would the people know who was God? The God who answered by fire. And Baal didn't answer. Jezebel's prophets didn't get any answer. But he on that day had fire fall from heaven, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, and even the stones, and licked up all the water that he poured on top of it. Wow. But now he's fleeing. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've experienced that when I experience high points in my Christian life, that's the time when the, the roaring lion, lion comes along and he attacks, seeks to bring me down. It's times when we experience God in his fullness that can be, not always, doesn't have to be, but can be followed by very low points of failure and sin. It's something to be on guard for. It's something we need to take heed for. It's something Elijah needed to take heed for. He went from experiencing a demonstration of God's majesty, glory, and power to a point of utter defeat. Just, he says, let me die. He says, I'm not better than my father's. You know, considering how he's saying that and when he's saying that, he's actually saying he is better, just let me die. Kind of a statement of pride. But he is exhausted. And it's interesting because I'm being hard on him, but it's interesting because God sends a, an angel, a messenger to him. And that messenger doesn't come alongside him and say, get with it. Come on. Toughen up. Get with it. It's interesting how this messenger comes. For here he is. He's laying and he's sleeping under a juniper tree. And it says, Behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. A few weeks ago we talked a little bit about this. 
just a little bit. This is a devotional thought in the afternoon of how Elijah is a man of like passions as we. It tells us in James. He's a man of like passions as we. That means he's a lot like us. He's a human being. And isn't it interesting here that before there's any conversations about what he's saying, it's arise, eat, sleep. I think we can learn from that. Sometimes we see people down in the dumps and we want to come alongside and, you know, hey, get to that, get your act together. And sometimes that's appropriate. But sometimes it's also appropriate to accommodate ways for that person to get the rest they need and the food that they need. Now, I'm not excusing, by the way. You know, there's people that talk about being hangry. You ever heard of being hangry? That means means that you're hungry, and it's showing itself by being angry. You know, being hangry is a sin. Still is a sin. doesn't matter that you're hungry. But sometimes the solution to that kind of anger is to go get some sugar in your blood. It's a legitimate need sometimes. Sometimes there's no reason to try to deal with that person until they get some sugar in their blood, especially if they're this big and don't have any control or haven't learned any control. Uh, it's, you know, no reason to... Deal with, deal with a lot of things until there's some sugar in the blood. And here's this is what the angel is saying to him. In this point here, he's, he's, he's utterly exhausted. Who knows how long it's been since he's eaten or here he's been traveling. 150 miles to Beersheba, and now he's gone another day's journey into the wilderness. And so God provided even the food. This is a good lesson for us messengers. You want to be a messenger unaware? Hebrews talks about messengers who honor or or angels who are angels unaware, meaning that they minister to people and they're actual angels, but yet they're not always identified or known as angels. Now, you can't be an angel because you're a person, but wouldn't it be nice to be mistaken as an angel? Think about it. Wouldn't it? Well, here's a way you can. When you see somebody in need, sometimes you just need to bring them some food. And that's what this angel did. This angel had right there a cake all baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. So Elijah, he did eat and drink, and he laid him down again. He went back to sleep. He went back to bed. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for thee. He's been journeying, 150 miles plus a day's journey, and he's got a long ways to go further. He's going all the way to Mount Sinai, and regardless of whether or not it's on this side of the Gulf of Aquaba or this side, he's got a long ways to go. If he's going to go to Mount Horeb, also named Mount Sinai or the mountain of God, he's got a long ways to go. You know why he's going there? Have you ever wondered or asked that question? Why is Elijah going to Mount Sinai? Why is he going to Mount Horeb? It doesn't say. And you might wonder, why is he going when on the way he just says, God, kill me? So why is he going? I think he knew he needed to pull away from people. And he needed to spend some time alone with God. And Mount Horeb sounded like a good place to do it. Did you know that the Apostle Paul did the same thing? He too went to Mount Horeb seeking to get closer to God. God brought Moses down to the backside of Mount Horeb to get his attention in taking care of sheep. 
It was a place where people went to pull aside, to spend time with God. Elijah's on his way to Mount Horeb, and here he says, the journey is too great for thee. Now, I want to draw an analogy here. Can I do that? Can I draw an analogy? Sometimes when preachers draw analogies, they get messed all up. And so sometimes I'm hesitant to do it. But let's draw an analogy here. Is life like a journey? Life is like a journey, isn't it? You're living life. It's like a journey. It takes time. You're going through places, right? In Hebrews, it's described as a race. Now, let me ask you a question. Is your journey too great for you? I'll be blunt. My journey is too great for me. It's too great for me. That's the reason why I need the bread of life. You know who the bread of life is, right? Jesus. Every day, I need Jesus. If I'm going to try to live this life, if I'm going to live the journey of life, it's too great for me. John chapter 15 says that without Jesus, we can do nothing. But with him, we bring forth much fruit. You know, I think it's important for us all to recognize that this journey that we're living, life, it's too great for us. And we need Christ to help us, to carry us, to lead us in this life. Here it says that he needed this bread. He needed to eat because the journey is too great. You know, bread is what we need for life. But over and over and over in the Bible, God uses food to teach us spiritual lessons. Have you ever seen someone starving physically? Probably not in America. Not starving. You might find hungry people, but not generally in America do you find starving people, generally. There are exceptions. But have you ever found a starving person spiritually? Perhaps this morning you're starving spiritually. God uses over and over food and our, our physical life to parallel our spiritual life. And when we try to live the journey without the bread of life, without Jesus, and without his word, we're going to starve. And we will not be able to continue in the journey. We need Jesus we need the bread of life. Now, here's what's fascinating. Because it tells us here in verse 8 that he arose and did eat and drink. And then look at this phrase. And in the strength of that meat, he went 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, you might think, well, wait a minute here preacher you just not talked about how important it was for this poor man elijah to eat food and now he's eating his food and now he's gonna go 40 days and 40 nights without any food i won't ask you to raise your hands but how many of you ever done that 
Well, the reason why I say I don't want you to raise your hands is because did you know that some people have? Some people do for the same reason Elijah did. Do you know the reason why fasting is an important part in life? To remind us how weak we are and how much we need Jesus. It really is. And that's the situation here with Elijah. He experienced in this time how much he needed God. He gets to Mount Horeb, and how long and when the next verses take place in that 40 days and 40 nights, I don't know. I imagine they take place pretty quickly um, because of who I see as the man. And then you see how time goes by, and at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, you see the man Elijah with the courage and the boldness that you saw at Mount Carmel. He goes to Mount Sinai, fasting. And he comes there, and there is a cave. Finds a cave. That's not a good place to live, right? And he lodged there. He lived there. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? God wants to know, Elijah, what are you doing at Mount Horeb? So what's Elijah say? Elijah, verse 10 says, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. What's that mean? Well, I wonder if Elijah hasn't begun to think about this place he's come. Take your Bibles and turn back with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Do you know what's in Exodus chapter 20? How many of you know what's in Exodus chapter 20 without looking? Oh, good. The rest of you need to know. It's where we find the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are recorded in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Two very important passages of scripture. Well, do you know where God gave the Ten Commandments? If we compare scripture with scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 20 and 19, we find out that on that magnificent day when the children of Israel were camped around the base of Mount Sinai, God descended upon that mountain in his glory. Remember the furnace of fire, the fiery pillar that descended upon the top of that mountain. The thunderings and the lightnings and the trumpet that waxed louder and louder and louder. And then on top of all of that, the children of Israel heard the booming voice of God delivering these ten commandments. What a spectacular sight that would have been. Amazing. Elijah's come here. There's no pillar of fire. There's no pillar of cloud. There's just a cave. God asks him what he's doing there. And he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. What's that mean? Well, let's look at one of the Ten Commandments. God says to his people that they are not to have any other gods. So he says here, 
in chapter 20, verse 2, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. This is a jealousy that's a good kind of jealousy. It's the kind of a jealousy that a husband would have for his wife or a wife for her husband. It's an exclusivity. I'm not saying that word right. It's an exclusive relationship limited to only a select group. Here, God is saying, I'm the only one. I am the only one, and I'm jealous about it. I am passionate about the fact that I am your only God. Isn't it interesting here that one of the first comments that Elijah makes when he is at Mount Horeb, the same mountain where the Ten Commandments were given, and he's asked, what are you doing here? He brings up the first commandment. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of Israel. He's, he, he has served the Lord God of hosts. And he goes on. Verse 10, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, the covenant delivered at Mount Sinai. They've forsaken it. They've thrown down thine altars and they've slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, and I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Here he's come down to Mount Sinai to hide. He thinks he's the only one left. And that happens sometimes. Even today. Sometimes we think of ourselves as the only ones. That's a little dangerous to do. Did you know that? It, it can really throw you into a pit of despair. Because you know Elijah wasn't the only one. Was he forgetting about Obadiah? I mean, he knew about Obadiah at least. And wait a minute. Obadiah told him, has it not been told you that I have been hiding the prophets of the Lord and feeding them from Jezebel's table? So Elijah knew he wasn't the only one. He knew it up here, but he didn't feel it. He thought he was the only one left, and they were seeking to take him away. So God is going to get his attention. And this is really fascinating. It's really fascinating, especially comparing it in context to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 builds up the scene of what's taking place. The children of Israel are all around Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God there. And we see the glory and the majesty of God. And we hear the booming voice of God. So here now, Elijah's at that same mountain, and he's hiding there in a cave. God comes to him and says, what are you doing here? And Elijah basically says, I'm scared. I'm hiding because of you. And so then God gives him a lesson, and it's a really fascinating lesson. 
Look what it says here. God says to him, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. So Elijah comes out of that cave, climbs up that mount, and he stands there. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever seen a wind like that. I mean, I've seen pretty strong winds, but have you ever seen wind that rents the rocks? Wind that moves rocks? I mean, it moves flimsy houses, but oh, wow. I mean, this is impressive. A wind that rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But, look at this next phrase, but the Lord was not in the wind. Well, we just saw a major demonstration of power, wind power. But God's not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. That's terrifying. You ever felt the ground shake beneath you? We don't get them often here. But if you ever do experience it, it is a weird and scary feeling. Especially when things are falling down around you, and I've never experienced that. This sounds like the one that was stuff was falling down around you. There's this earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. You know what this is reminding me of? This is reminding me of what the children of Israel saw in Exodus chapter 19 when God descended upon the mountain. Well, what's next? God's though not in the earthquake. Chapter verse 12. And after the earthquake, a fire. Remember Exodus 19? The pillar of fire came down on that mountain described as a furnace of fire. You know, wind is pretty powerful. Uh, Earthquakes, (laughs) they shake things up. Fire is pretty powerful. But the Lord was not in the fire. Now what's next? What's God going to show him? God is showing Elijah some of the greatest powers in nature. In his creation. What's next? And after the fire, a still small voice. Now, you know what I find interesting here? Is comparing this Mount Sinai experience to the Mount Sinai experience of the children of Israel. What was different about the voice that the children of Israel heard? It was loud. But this one's a still, small voice. And it tells us that it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and he stood at the entering end of the cave. Apparently he's run back to the cave. 
<laughs> After the earthquake. Although I don't know if I would want to go back in a cave with an earthquake. He, he, he comes to the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And Elijah said the same thing he said up in verse 10. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and have slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And then God answers with no further explanation, but simply giving him some jobs. You're going to go anoint a new king of Syria. You're going to go anoint a new king of Israel. And you're going to go anoint, or you're kind of not going to anoint, but kind of anoint, a prophet to replace you. I'm going to train one. I've got three jobs for you. By the way, if you could go back in time to this time, you would find out that these were not fun jobs. This week in our house, we were talking about the difference of being willing to do something and wanting to do something. Newsflash, I don't think Elijah wanted to go do this. But after this experience, and after having this time with God, he does. He goes and he does these things. But before we go on to that, let's talk some about that still small voice. Sometimes we say, oh God, why don't you just do what you did at Mount Sinai for me? Or do what you did at Mount Sinai for the children of Israel or for Elijah for me. In different ways he does, you know, every single day. This is one reason why I love thunderstorms. How many of you love thunderstorms? Oh, good. I love thunderstorms. Now, I say that, and I've never been hurt by one, and I've never even known anyone ever to be hurt by one. That might change if I did. But for me, I love thunderstorms because it's power. I mean, just magnificent power. And what's really incredible to me as I observe the power is that God's in absolute control of it. Years ago, my parents' house chimney got hit by lightning, blew some bricks off, and went through, fried a bunch of electronics in the house. And I often have thought back to that. That's amazing. But you know that God was in control of every single path that lightning went and took? But here's the thing. The lightning is powerful, but that's not what's exciting to me. What's exciting to me is that I know the creator of the lightning and I know that the creator of the lightning is greater and more powerful than the lightning. And he's made promises to me. In a still small voice. It doesn't have to have the lightning and the thunderclaps. A little simple promise can and should be a thunderclap in our hearts.
Have you ever thought about that? We read these verses, and sometimes we read them, and we hear them so frequently that they become mundane to us. But the promise, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, that's a thunderbolt in my heart. Is it in yours? There are so many promises that God has given. There are so many still small voices of God revealed in his word that is greater than the fires, than the earthquakes, or the lightnings, or the wind. God's greater than them all. Do we listen to the still, small voice of God? We need to. As we wrap up, let's look at these assignments that God has for Elijah. He says in verse 15, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Hmm. Damascus, Syria. That's up north. That's over beyond Baasha. Our map here, it's not even on here. We're looking at our map here. It'd be up over here. Syria. Now, Syria, that's not a nation of Israel, right? Is, that, is, is Syria Israel? No. But God's going to have Elijah go anoint a king in Syria. That's kind of strange, don't you think? Not really. Because we find out in other places that it's God who ultimately, whether or not there's an Elijah to anoint them, God sets up kings and he takes them down. He's in total control. This is kind of a bad job. Bad job's the wrong word. <laughs> That's a hard job. Because Haziel is the servant of Ben-Hadad, who is the king of Syria. Elijah has just been given the task of going through the wilderness of Damascus to Syria to anoint a man to take over his master's kingdom. An overthrow of power. You might think, wow, God's picking out a good king in Syria to do lots of good things in Syria because Syria needs a good king. Ben-Hadad, he's been awful, awful, awful. I mean, you remember Asa and, and Ben-Hadad, they kind of made that partnership and, and part of that partnership is that he went and he attacked some of the cities in northern Israel so, so some of the heat from Baasha would be taken off of Asa and Judah and it would all be reshifted towards the north in Israel, all that conflict. Syria's been causing trouble, 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 trouble. And God, remember, rebuked Asa and says, why did you make a league with Ben-Hadad? If you had trusted me as you did years before with the Edomites, I would have delivered the Syrians into your hand and spared you so much trouble, both now and for generations to come. But no, you trusted in this alliance with Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad's a wicked king, so hey, this guy, he's got to be good, right? Mm -hmm. 
turn with me, you have to see this. We have to jump ahead of the story because it makes my ears tingle and I think you need to know about it. Go to 2 Kings chapter 8. It's interesting because now Elijah's dead. And there's no specific record of him ever doing what he was commanded to do here. But Elisha, his servant and the one who replaced him, travels north up into Syria. And when he comes up into Syria, he finds, well, he, he comes, to, comes to Damascus. Ben-Hadad is sick. And Ben-Hadad sends who other than his trusted servant, Hazael, to Elisha. Everybody knows Elisha is a man of God. And so this servant, Haziel, comes to Elisha and wants to know about what's going to happen with his father, or not his father, he's not related, but what's going to happen with his majesty, the king. And, and Elisha tells him that he's going to get better, but he's still going to die. And then he tells this man, you're going to be the next king. Now, we're going to talk some more about what's going on here when we get to it. But as soon as he tells him that he will be the next king, it says in verse 11 that he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. And Haziel said, why weepeth my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword. And wilt dash their children, and rip up their women with children. I ask, God, why would you tell Elijah to anoint such a man? Couldn't you pick a better man? He's going to burn their cities, kill their young men, set their strongholds on fire, dash their children, I don't even really want to describe what that's talking about. It's killing the children in a cruel way. Ripping up their women with child. God says to Elijah, go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Why? He goes on. He's got someone else to anoint. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. Jehu's not of the family of Ahab or of Omri. And Elisha, the son of Shalphat, of Abel Meholon, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. 
Look at verse 17. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. You see, the situation in Israel is still a disaster. Yes, there's been that magnificent confrontation at Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. But so many hearts have not changed. Oh, and, but lest you get too discouraged again, Elijah. Yes, it, what God is saying to Elijah is, Elijah, you're right. The, the, the nation has forsaken me. You, you only are indeed the last one left. But not quite. For he closes this out by saying, yet... I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees of which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. So yes, it's dark and gloomy, but don't let the dark and the gloomy get you down. Judgment's coming, but you're not the only one. You see, God's saying to him, trouble's coming, trouble's coming, trouble's coming, trouble's coming. Don't hide in a cave. Go. There are 7,000 who have still not bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed him. There are still a remnant. There are still the faithful ones. Elijah, you too stay faithful. Stay faithful. Even when you see this whore come through your land, stay faithful. I've got a plan. And he did. And we're going to learn about that plan as the days go by. But in all of this, let us learn from Elijah. These things were written for our learning. That we, through the admonition of these, these historical accounts, might learn. May we know that the journey is too great for us, that we need the bread of life, Jesus, every single day. Let's never forget that when the world is roaring and raging around us in whatever way it does, and it does all kinds, you can probably name a few right now, God's still greater. In a still, small voice, He's given us all the promises and the guarantees we need to stay faithful. Oh, and by the way, regardless of who ends up being president, I don't think that they'll be half as bad as Haziel. <laughs> There's some sad things, though, actually, when you compare some of the description of him that is actually real in our own society. We just do it in clinics. And it's a sad thing. Um, but with all of it, don't, don't, don't sit back and, and, and want to go hide in a cave or, or sulk or pout or whine. It, go forth and stay faithful. Go forth and stay faithful. God's got a plan. God's got a plan. Whether the election's rigged or not, God's got a plan. And we can trust him and let's not get distracted as we trust him. Let's not forget, he speaks to us in a still small voice.
and we can rest and trust in him. Oh God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you still do speak to us today. May we have the eyes and the ears of faith to hear and to believe. And when the world is raging around us, may we fix our eyes on you. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, may we run with patience the race that you have set before us. Lord, it is too great for us, and we have sin that doth so easily beset us, but we know that in your spirit, by your grace, in faith, we can carry on, carry on in your strength and goodness. May we do just that. Lord, we praise you that you have a plan no matter what. Even when we don't understand it, you've got a plan. And we thank you that we can rest and hope in that reality today. We give ourselves to you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.